Welcome everyone. My name is Jamie Nemsis and welcome to Market Thinkers Series 3, Episode 3. As per usual, I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. Welcome, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. And our guest today is Andrew Lockhart from Metrics. Morning, Andrew. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Thanks for having me. Hi, Drew. This series is dedicated to the theme of retirement. As most people know, Drew and I are principals of a wealth management firm called Waddle Partners. And our firm focuses on clients that are in the last third of their third of their life uh, or retirement. One, so running a series dedicated to retirement we thought was very appropriate. One thing we talk about a lot to clients is something that is really simple and it's uh, a formula which is total return or TR equals I plus G. Um, so total return inco equals income plus growth within our portfolio construction and, and objectives. We, we separate those two things, income and growth. Already in this series, we have talked about the G um, and we've talked about the platform that retirees uh, face. So this, this episode, we're going to talk a lot about the I. Um, this session is live, so please uh, feel free to send uh, any questions through. We are a little time constrained, so it will uh, run for 40 minutes, the session. Uh, Drew, can you do a introduction to the topic and to Andrew? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, I think best place to start is, I, I probably get in trouble for saying it, but there's kind of an obsession with income in Australia. A lot of people we meet, they've been self-directed, you know, been spoilt by a unique tax system globally. Franken credits kind of favoured shares. You've had a strong economy for something like 20, 25 years until last year. Um, but I think that, as we saw last year, boards are pretty quick to cut dividends uh, when they're in trouble. Um, but also, you know, capital losses, uh, the risk of capital losses is kind of increasing where valuations are. But a lot of the Australian, you know, the biggest Australian businesses are suffering from disruption from, from many angles. So we've been all about, as Jamie said, in terms of the income part, having multiple sources of income, not just relying on one sector or one type of investment. Um, and that's why we thought we'd speak to uh, metrics who focus on the, the credit or the fixed income and credit part of the market. Um, been highly popular with institutions, wealthy investors, you know, sovereign, sovereign funds all over the world, um, but not so in, in retail. So we thought reasonable place to start is maybe a bit of an understanding of what credit is. It's kind of seems to be a very difficult <laughs> term to define yeah. for a lot of people. Or yeah. maybe a bit about you, Andrew. We haven't probably given you a great introduction. Um, we assume <laughs> that everyone knows you already, but uh, do you want to just quickly tell us how, why, why you're in credit? How, how, yeah, what's, sure. your, what's your history? Yeah, sure. So um, Metrics Credit is a business that we set up back in, um, in 2011. Uh, we launched our first fund for investors in June of 2013. So my background and the background of the most of the people that work in metrics have come from banks. And so that um, what we're about is you know, building good long-term relationships with companies, understanding their business and their operation, and then looking to provide debt financing to support them in terms of their activities to support them to grow. And obviously, you know, what that delivers for our investors is income, income through the fees that are charged to companies together with the margin and interest that's charged to companies for the loan that we've provided. You know, we, we're talking about large businesses. You know, we're not a sure. we're not a lender for consumers and we're not a lender to 
you know, SME uh, companies. Got a minimum size, Andrew, that you would lend to? Is it oh, a- look, I think, I think generally for us would probably be, you know, 10 million up uh, would be the sort of minimum, minimum revenue loan or- amount. Uh, oh, no, the loan amount. Materially high. Okay. So, so Drew, just to answer your question then, I guess, in terms of what is a definition of credit, I, I, I would say for us, it's about uh, lending directly to performing companies. Uh, and that, and that is, um, you know, if you think about a, a company, it will be comprised of equity and it will have some debt. Uh, what we're about is providing the debt capital uh, to support the growth. So for us, in the Australian market context, most companies in Australia don't have credit ratings. Uh, most companies don't have access to a bond market. And so in the Australian market, what, what actually happens is that most companies are pretty much captive to borrowing money from banks. So our business is about competing with and working alongside the banks to provide funding to companies to support their activities. And, and banks so won't really lend on anything apart from residential property either, will they? That's kind of the... Uh, for, for large companies, it's more cash flow cash flows that are the key drivers. So the ability of the company to generate cash to service and repay the debt is is, is what drives the lending opportunity. So they do have a, a narrow kind of viewpoint of lending though, don't they? Banks? You know, yeah, they do. They're, they're very prescriptive. Yeah. yeah. So within, if you think about in the portfolio, your, your fixed income allocation, you look, traditionally you're looking at effectively making loans or purchasing bonds from sovereigns, State governments, government, government related, generally, mm. and then where does credit fit in, or is is credit kind of where the the credit ratings are either unrated or it starts to to broaden out a bit more? It's credit is just lending to businesses essentially, isn't it? Yeah, correct. If you if you think about it, most most investors, and you talked about being spoilt for choice in income, I, I would actually say most investors have had a pretty limited opportunity to invest in traditional or fixed income type of assets. And that's largely because they've been crowded out by the banks. Um, and so investors have tended to go into public market securities. So if you think about bonds or equities, they're public market securities. As a lender, what we're about is um, a private transaction between a lender and a company where it's you know directly sourced. We negotiate the terms, we negotiate the conditions we set the controls, take the security to provide that funding. And so we operate in a private market, whereas a lot of investors that buy bonds have got more volatility in their, in their, in their portfolio because there's more traded aspects of the, of the instruments that are held. And how's that market evolved over the last, when you start 2011, that's 10 years? Um, yeah, so we, we, um, we, we really sort of started, I guess, in, in the Australian market being the first sort of non-bank corporate lender. Uh, and, and since that period of time, it's been fantastic to see the support and growth of our business. So we, when we started back in June of 13, we had you know, one investor who had invested $75 million into, into the funds. Uh, since then, we've now been able to grow our business to a position where we have close on 10 billion in terms of assets under management. We now employ around about 100 people. Uh, we have a presence in Sydney, Melbourne, and in Auckland in New Zealand. And, uh, and, and, but I think what really is going to continue to drive the growth for our business is the continued withdrawal of the banks um, as regulatory pressure continues to impact the banks. Companies need to find an alternative source of funding. 
and investors are also looking for alternatives to deposits or bonds or hybrids. Um, and so what we're offering investors is quite a unique uh, you know, proposition in terms of stability and protection of capital through properly structured and, and negotiated loans, but then a unique source of income that's not uh, you know, correlated with other markets. So you're in a bit of a sweet spot where there's so there's like untapped demand for lending, as you were saying. Not not every unlisted business can go and raise equity very easily, so they have to rely on debt. But then you're also seeing people probably sick of falling dividends or market volatility creeping up, and you're basically sitting in the middle and you know yeah. offering the way I kind of described it is you taking the margin away from the bank. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, it does. You know, like at the end of it, there are probably four key parts of the market. That banks operate in and they are you know it's not not we're, we're not a lender of last resort you know, at the end of it my skill set and the skill set of our team i've been doing this for sort of between 30 to 40 years so you know the skill set is about you know understanding what are the cash flow drivers of the company and how will the company service and repay the debt and then how do we as a lender get ensure that we get our money back mm. um, and so you know if you think about our activities you know we lend to corporate australia so ASX publicly listed groups, we have, you know, we lend to those groups alongside the banks. We're very active in project and infrastructure funding. So for instance, we provide funding to a range of government-backed PPP. So in, in, in Melbourne, for, as an example, we're a lender to the Mornington Peninsula Motorway, or we provided financing to the Victorian Cancer Centre. Uh, we also lend for commercial real estate purposes. So if you think about the development of a land subdivision or an industrial building, you know, often that you know, there's debt financing being provided and we're active in that part of the market. And then the final piece that we're, we're, where we lend is, is really for companies that are being acquired, so acquisition financing um, to support, you know, support the growth and, and opportunity of those companies to, to expand. You've talked about protection. Um, so when you, it's a bit like a equity analyst when they review a stock where all the information is publicly available. I assume you have a team of analysts that once the deal comes to you, you look through their accounts, try to understand it. Obviously, you must have some really good people that understand lots of different things, um, businesses and how, how to price price it how to engage with management how to then make sure if it all goes um belly up how you protect your investors money is, is that a team that's hard to build andrew or it's a it's a skill set that um has been developed over many years you know like for us it's it's the core of our business and so the people we've attracted um have have had that banking background so the the real key to what we do which is different to public market investors so if you you talked about the equity analysts equity analysts won't actually negotiate the terms and conditions upon which a company comes to an ipo sure uh, or a bond bond investor will buy a bond that's really been structured by a bank uh, or sold by or, an investment bank too. yeah sold by an investment bank whereas for us you know our our, our role is to build relationships with companies um, corporate advisors and, and um, banks looking to provide opportunities to finance those companies. And so at the work that we do is actually what gives me the confidence to say that we actually put in place structures and terms and conditions to mitigate risk and to manage and ensure that our investors' capital is protected and preserved. So when you think about it, if I lend money to you and, I, and, and Drew made the comment that when conditions deteriorate, 
the companies stop paying dividends. Mm. Well, why do they do that? Because a lender has the priority to be repaid ahead of shareholders. Sure. So again, as a lender, what I would do is we structure facilities to say, you know, if, you can't, if the company is not generating sufficient cash or earnings, then dividends are restricted. That's one of the controls. You'll put controls around, you know, the balance sheet or the cash flow generation of the company. You take security. They're all designed to protect and mitigate risk of capital loss. So you protect so, early, essentially, rather mm, than that's right. Um, that's right. And obviously, we're a, we're we're a fan of metrics. You're on our recommended list. You're in our model. So don't take this the wrong way. Tell us um, when. What's been the, the, the worst experience you've had in terms of lending money to groups? And was there any great lessons out of that that you can, you know, you've applied forward for your business? I think, I think the interesting thing is you have to have a very close control over the companies you lend to and you need to monitor it. And so we're, we're actually in a very fortunate position that over the last eight years since we've operated metrics independent of the bank, you know, we, we've not actually had any position where we've lost money for investors. So, you know, as I sit here today, our, the companies that we lend to are actually up to date in terms of their interest and principal payments. And, and that, that, you know, the big protections for investors is not only the way in which we structure the loan, but it's also the way in which we manage it. And so ensuring that the companies are adhering to their obligations. So companies are required to maybe report to us on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. But also, you know, and that gives us a view as to their financial performance and how they're tracking in their industry and their business. But also what's really important as a means to mitigate risk for investors is to have a well-diversified spread of your portfolio. And so, you know, somebody buying into, say, MXT or uh, our retail unlisted version, the Metrics Direct Income Fund, yep. they get exposure to 200, in excess of 200 individual loans. And, what, and where what, each each one represents at a less than one percent. One percent. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and it can be kind of because your allocations are kind of broad. I think you kind of have is it hospitality, events, property. It's kind of yeah. it's hard to know the level of diversification on there. Yeah. Um, but definitely, is that lack of any lost money over a decade? Is that normal for the for the sector? It's you know, actually people... consistent with the way the banks have performed. You know, if you look at yeah. the banks in terms of their large institutional borrowers, mm. you know, their, their losses peaked back in uh, 2009, coming out of the GFC, where their losses in their actual write-offs were 0.67 of 1%. So, yeah. you know, you've got a decade where the, the most significant amount of lost capital was sort of 12 months outside of the GFC. Yeah. Have you needed to get involved in terms of workouts or yeah. uh, that sort of thing before? For, yeah. I think yeah. summarising a workout, that's basically where someone starts is at risk of defaulting and you kind of take action. That's yeah, that's it. At the end of it, you have to have that corporate insolvency and workout experience. And, and I guess over many years, we've been able to build that skill set. And yeah, you do. Sometimes you have to have tough conversations with borrowers to ensure that your your interests and the interests of your investors are protected and preserved and so that skill set is very important you can't you can't outsource that you know i've heard i've heard some managers say oh it's okay because we lend alongside the banks if something goes wrong the banks will take care of the worker we don't have that same view our view is if something goes wrong we need to roll up our sleeves and uh, and, and manage the position to ensure our investors get their money back can you trade also, out? Can you trade the the loan out to someone else 
Andrew, you can, but it's 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 you know the, it's not really a traded market. It's kind of one yep. of those ones where you lend for five years, you provide the funding, and at the yep. end of the five years, you might refinance or whatever. It's this, not really a traded market. I was watching uh, Billions last night, and they uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the latest one, and he kind of uh, <laughs> he took someone else. He said, "I'll just take that other person's due diligence." So he just outsources due diligence to someone else. But it was a trap, yeah. so it makes yeah. complete sense. There's a good so question. I was watching Succession. <laughs> yeah, I'm on onto that next. <laughs> There's a good question come through, which is, "What's the structure? You know, the the capital structure? Are you senior, subordinated?" unsecured where where are the most of them it, it, it depends on the funds so what we actually have is a range of investment choice for clients and uh, an investor can determine what is their return objective what's the risk that they're prepared to accept to generate that return and then what are the liquidity features of the investment product is it daily is it monthly is it quarterly so you know they're the important characteristics so in in some of our funds you know we have high yield where we're providing mezzanine and taking equity positions at, at, in other funds that we manage, so if you think about MXT as an example, so the publicly listed MXT, that fund is predominantly investment grade, predominantly senior secured. Um, whereas MOT, and, and MXT is really designed to be that sort of traditional fixed income replacement in a client portfolio. Yep. MOT is really designed for those clients that are looking for a higher yield. Yep. And, and, and they're sort of saying, okay, well, I've put all my money into the share market because I'm going to get the dividends. Well, MOT was designed to give you an equity-like, a dividend-like payment in terms of the coupon, but lower risk because you're investing in debt. Even though you might be investing in mezzanine debt, it's still a lower risk in terms sure. of where you sit in the capital structure compared to equity. Now, liquid that yields liquidity, 3% over cash? Uh, MXT generates um, well. It, it's currently generating about 4.25 over the RB, uh, over the RBA cash rate. Um, it, the minimum target return that we seek to deliver for investors is 3.25 over the RBA cash rate. And you compare that, right? If you look at it and say you've got daily liquidity on the ASX and you're getting monthly income and you've got capital stability, you know what that product was designed to deliver for people was capital stability, regular monthly income and a monthly income that generates um, from a well-diversified portfolio. And so, you know, we've, we've tried to increase the level of liquidity in that fund, lower the costs over time to deliver a better outcome for investors. You know, when we, we launched that fund in October 2017, the initial investors were only diversified across 55 individual loans. Now, as that fund has grown, it's now almost 1.5 billion. Uh, that fund is, has grown. We've, we now diversify investors' exposure across 208 individual loans. And what happened last year with that fund? Did, was there yeah. a, a temporary stall to capital stability? or? Oh. No, so the process is we, we have our loans that are independently valued and tested for impairment or credit risk on a monthly basis by, by one of the large top-tier accounting firms. Sure. And we quote that daily valuation and the risk of impairment to the market every day. Mm -hmm. um, we've never really moved from the $2 that is the value that which we... Which makes sense, right? the IPO. That's yeah. how loans yeah. work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Equity should be the volatile asset class. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But what happened in, in MXT in the middle of the pandemic in March was you got a lot of investors that were very nervous and concerned, probably didn't speak to their advisors, sold out and then suffered a loss. Yep. Other investors bought at the discount. So often you hear of the discount to NAV in terms of ASX listed funds, 
the problem with our, with our vehicle is there should be no reason why it trades at a discount. You're effectively saying that if the loan is repaid and metrics gets its 100 cents in the dollar back, then you're discounting cash. So our alternative would be, okay, if the market doesn't accept the NAV that we've quoted mm. and it's trading at, I think it got down to about $1.30, mm. so, so a 70 cent discount to the NAV. Mm. All we would simply do is say, okay, the loans can run off, go into maturity, We'll sure. convert from a loan to cash. The discount would have to would have to recover, and so but, the but biggest you can buy issue it off of is PDS as well, right? If you don't want that, if you want yeah, you can, don't want you the, can buy the unlisted, you can buy and the unlisted, unlisted. Fund, and the unlisted fund is not traded away from that. So that, let's let's just talk about portfolio construction for a minute. Then, if uh, you're you're seeing defensive assets and you know it's a pyramid and at the top you've got cash, which means it's got no market volatility at all, and you go all the way down to the bottom line where it flips over to equity, we've got volatility. Um, you probably sit in the middle of the stack, do you think? Or do you think- I think higher up. Higher up, if you, yep. if you If you actually look at, um, you know, I was looking at some of the, this, or the, some of the bond funds that investors have allocated sure. money to. They, they're still delivering, you know, sometimes negative months and, and there's volatility in their returns. And that's because most of those, they're taking a, a position in terms of duration or interest rate movement. Sure. So if interest rates move, the capital value is impacted. Our Very asset class, majority of the loans are floating rate. So if interest rates start to move, the total income paid to investors increases. So it's really important in our asset class that people understand there's an asset class that can provide for stability and protection of capital through appropriate terms and conditions and covenants security that are negotiated with the borrower and then further improve that capital stability through well-diversified portfolios. But then on the income side, why investors invest in metrics funds is because they're expecting us to ensure that our investors are appropriately rewarded for the risk. So when we negotiate with a company, making sure we charge the right fee, we charge the right margin to deliver the income for our investors. And what sort of length are those, the loans you're making? Are they, you know, 18 months, two years, five, 10, so not 30 it, year mortgages? No, it, it depends. So again, if you financing, say, a property development transaction. So it's a residential high-rise development tower that you're financing. Yep. That will be probably 18 months to 36 months in term. You know, by the time of, you know, completion of the project, repayment from pre-sales. Um, or alternatively, if it's a corporate loan, it'll generally be between three and five years. Higher quality borrowers like Woolworths would get five-year terms. Lower credit quality borrowers might be three-year terms. Essentially, so you basically you got a trust with a certain amount of assets in it that MXT and the other ones kind of invest into. That's how it works, and then you kind of yeah, the capital refreshing that capital. investors, and we and we use that money to lend. So, for instance, to give you an in indication, at the moment we're sitting on about two point two billion of transactions that are due to close. So, mm. loans that are progressing through documentation through to financial close, and we have about seven hundred odd million just in loans that are due to mature and repay in the next 90 days. And so we monitor and manage that inflow of investor capital together with the maturing loans to make sure that we've got capital to provide funding to new borrowers and new companies that we're financing. Yeah, and you're constantly refreshing here. Yeah. I want to I think maybe talk go about the word, sorry, Drew, do you want to... Um, I'm probably going to do the same thing. Yeah, I want to talk about the word credit and the word fixed income and the word credit to mum and dad investors, to, to investors generally, is still a bit um, unknown. They don't really know what to expect in credit. 
Um, so that's the first part of my question. And the second part of my question is that, you know, every um, ad that is pushed to uh, our clients um, is some kind of group using the word credit and they're offering some kind of high yield. So they mm. use the word credit. I see there's lots of credibility in the word credit if it's explained right but then there's lots you know marketing um groups that are saying oh here's a nine percent yield here's eight percent yield we're a credit fund but that's kind of the depth how do you see the landscape at the moment in terms of that and you know mum and dad's trying to find yield and the use use of the word credit um do, do yeah, i think i think the issue is um it's a very broad market um you can invest you know you can lend it you know, to an investment grade company at one end and, and a sub-investment grade or lower down in the capital structure, taking more risk. So I think what, what is always really important is, you know, you need to look at the credibility and the quality of the team that are actually doing it and understand the assets that they are investing in. So How do you do that, though, Andrew? That's, that's kind of hard for us. Well, I think... It's the, hard enough for us, right? Yeah. Let alone, you know, yeah. an investor think, that's trying to run his own... Yeah. I think one of the things that's been unfortunate is, you know, credit often gets disparaged as being, you know, junk bonds or whatever. Sure. For us as a lender, you know, we lend to investment grade borrowers and we lend to sub-investment grade borrowers. But as a lender, what you actually find is that the company that is sub-investment grade will have tighter, more onerous restrictions imposed on them to, for a lender to be able to control the risk. So what, what, one of the things that you're actually a sensible lender... So in our case, what we're actually trying to do for investors is take advantage of our skill set to negotiate appropriate terms and conditions and pricing with the company. Whilst delivering a fair price to the company, we want the company to perform and do well, and we want to build on that relationship because it's through that relationship and performance that it gives our investors the opportunity to generate the income. But if you think about it, all credit quality uh, will be different. So you use what we call a you know, credit rating scale. So S&P have a, have a credit rating scale. The term of the loan or the instrument that you invest in should reflect the, the risk. So our, our view is always that as a lender, what you want to do is to lend for shorter periods of time because it reduces the credit risk that investors are exposed to. It reduces the market risk investors are exposed to. And as Drew mentioned, the ability to recycle that capital improves the liquidity and it also drives the opportunity to generate fee income and fee income is an attractive source of return for investors. Um, but to answer your point, it's very difficult. Um, not all lenders are, uh, you know, unfortunately, you only need to look back over the history of Australia, and you don't, and, and it doesn't, and it doesn't bode well. You know, you've seen a lot of debenture funds, or you know, even even in the last couple of years, we've had um, you know, ASIC take action against a, a, a private lender. At the end of it, what a lender must have clear focusing on is very clearly the cash flows that can be generated to service and repay the debt mm. and then ensuring that they've negotiated and put in place appropriate terms and conditions and structure and security to mitigate the risk of not getting your money back at exit. So for us, what we look at is we're looking at the long-term financial performance of the company and the long-term financial performance of the industry and taking a view that, okay, if earnings are going to drop 20 or 30%, we need to be well below that. So we need to have, have, a, have structured the loan to effectively say, in a worst case scenario, long-term worst case scenario, 
the company can sustain a material drop in earnings and a material decline in valuation, and it will still get our money back. Um, and, and, and that's very different because from an equity market perspective, what investors are often looking at is saying, well, we've invested in this company hoping for growth, growth in earnings, sure. growth in, whereas we're looking at it, we don't, we don't value the growth. We value stability and protection to the downside. So, so about those other players, generally the old rule that, you know, risk and return needs to be in balance is, is, is still a pretty good rule. Yeah, if you're seeing something that is um, providing 9% with no risk, you probably say 9% might be okay, but it's definitely got no risk, right? It's got it's risk, risk attached to it. And if not, it'd be arbed out really quick. So yeah, it's not quite as easy as that. You know, like for instance, there are, you know, I'll give you an example. You can, it, we've all heard of the property developer that, you know, needs to find $5 million to be able to get the project out of the ground. He scratches around trying to find funding for that $5 million. The project's too big for him and he doesn't have the financial wherewithal to, to, to take on the risk because yep. he doesn't have the capital. But somebody lends him $5 million as a mezzanine facility and they'll charge him you know, 20%. That's high risk because he, he doesn't have the financial wherewithal and he has to pay sure. a high price to be able to get access to the funding. Whereas if you think about it, Say, say we're lending to a company and the company needed mezzanine debt. That company might say, okay, I want, the, I want the 5 million, but they've got the financial wherewithal to be able to sustain and, and, and borrow the money. But what they're looking at is, say a lender then says, okay, I'm going to charge you 10 or 15%. They will take the view that is that, a, can, they, can they redeploy their equity and generate a higher return on their equity. So it's a corporate finance decision as opposed to a desperate needing, I need the cash decision. So you want to make sure that the people that you're lending to have the financial wherewithal to be able to support the exposure, either you know, mezzanine or senior debt. The, the project that you're financing or the company you're financing, you have to have deep understanding of what are the things that are going to drive the cash flow, what sure. are the potential risks, and then have I taken appropriate steps to mitigate that risk. Okay. And you mentioned fees. Can you explain to the listeners um, more about how your fund generates income by fees? Yep. So through origination, so basically sourcing the transaction opportunity with the company, you'll charge an upfront fee. Okay. Now, in our market, what actually happens is if you're the person that structures and arranges and negotiates the transaction, you're, you're entitled to be paid a higher fee than somebody that comes in at the back end of the transaction. I'll give you an example. We're doing a transaction at the moment, you know, $200 million. We'll underwrite the transaction. We'll charge the borrower 3%, but we'll bring in another lender. So we're bringing in another bank into the transaction. The bank will provide a commitment of $100 million. Yep. So our investors' exposure will go from 200 to 100, but we will only pay that bank 100 basis points. So effectively delivering an income of 200 basis points or 2% yep. for the work that we've done to structure and arrange and, and bring in the other bank. So that's an, that's a great source of income for our investors. Mm. That goes back into the fund for these. It goes back into yep. the fund. Which isn't the standard in the industry, is it? Is it no. Careful, careful, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yep. Uh, we'll I'll leave that one. Right? I mean, so tell us, um, we, we've never really asked anyone this before, but you know, you've been so successful over a, a short period of time. Where's metrics in 10 years' time? Is that 
does it become metrics the bank or does it you know does it become metrics that does lots of different lending including some distressed and other stuff what, what do you see the future for your group andrew Look, at the end of it, what we're obviously able to do is provided we deliver good outcomes for investors, and that means manage the risk, deliver the returns, then hopefully we'll continue to gain investor support. Our yep. view is the market will continue to move from being a bank-dominated market to looking for alternative sources of funding. Our view is that investors are better served by aggregating that capital and allowing one firm to become larger so that you've got more relevance. Yeah. You know, so if you think about it, say at $10 billion, we can do a transaction where we're relevant for say $100 million to the borrower. Yeah. Um, and therefore we can negotiate terms, conditions and the pricing to provide that benefit to our investors. If I'm a smaller manager and I can only provide say $5 million or $10 million, yeah. then the return for the investor is going to be inferior. Sure. They're just not relevant. And so size and scale makes you relevant which means that you can negotiate better terms, better conditions, have, have a more appropriate manner to, or means to manage the risk. But because you also um, have a larger amount of capital that can be deployed, you can then also generate a better return for investors. So size and scale matters in our market to, to deliver good outcomes for investors. But I would say to you that the thing that's really important is you know, the two things that we invest in the most in our business is origination capacity. So making sure we've got people on the ground that are building relationships with companies and looking to source good transaction opportunities for our investors. And the other area of investment in our business is in portfolio risk management. And so ongoing management of the risks that we take and ensuring that our investors capital is protected and preserved as best we can. And so they're the two areas of focus. So for us as a business, I think the banks will continue to decline and we hopefully should, uh, should continue to grow. And how is there many a point people you become sorry, sorry, too big? Is there a point you become too big? No, uh, you know, at the end of it, you can always turn that off if you're not delivering outcomes for investors. So your loan book's never going to be as big as a CBA, so there's always. No. <laughs> and, and 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 I don't want us to ever be a bank. Yeah. Like at the end of it, I, I think the 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 key for us is we only have one interest, and that's to provide capital and funding to our companies that we provide funding to, and we do that so that we can deliver good outcomes for our investors. And, and, and provided that we can deliver good outcomes for our investors, then hopefully we will continue to gain that market support uh, for our activities. Because quite frankly, you know, you look at the world of, uh, of, of investment choice and unfortunately, you know, there's been some pretty ordinary performances over, over many years. You know, people have lost confidence, I guess, in sort of more traditional public market investments. The volatility that you're exposed to in, say, a hybrid or a, or a, a bond fund or an equity investment they, that can cause concern for investors. They lose confidence. And so what people are concerned about is if, as a retiree, for instance, I want to make sure that I've got, I've got an unknown certainty in terms of how long I might live. So therefore, I want to protect and preserve my capital so that I'm not drawing down on my capital and reducing that capacity to, to finance my living costs. So what people want is protection, preserve their capital, to generate a return that de delivers a better income, source of income than alternative investments so that they can limit the potential drawdown under their capital because they're uncertain about how long they're going to live. And so that, that capital preservation is very important, but so is to deliver income that is better than alternative investment options for the same level of risk. 
I think you summed up our uh, formula is income <laughs> plus growth equals total return. So mm. um, maybe that's, uh, you have to go soon, Andrew. Um, Drew, any last questions you, you, you want to ask? I was going to expand on your one, which was you said you had 100 staff. So what, how mm. does that split between, say, due diligence, doing research and um, loan origination, as you were kind of saying yeah. before? The, the vast bulk of the business is focused on, on origination and portfolio risk management and also the management and servicing of the loans. So obviously you need to monitor the cash flows and repayments and, and fee payments that are being made by companies. And so, so you have 200 it's... monthly financial reports coming in. Is <laughs> yes, that what I see? Pretty much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least 200, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we kept pretty busy. Is digital um, tech helping you with that? Yes. You get so. um, <laughs> feed, so. feed and, you know, yeah. uh, very uh, much so. Exception rules, yeah. flags. So we, we have a whole end-to-end -end process. You know, we've yep. well and truly moved well beyond spreadsheets to manage our our, our business. And um, you know, so using technology, so you've got real-time access to the performance, understand you know the covenants and the reporting obligations that are being adhered to by borrowers. You know, we do crazy things like we, we reconcile our bank balances, you know, at least three times a day, just so that we're monitoring, you know, the cash performance. And, and so you've just got to be across it. And um, and that's a, that's a rule in our business. So we do things like that to, to monitor and manage our exposures and, and the risks um, across our business. Drew and I met the um, CEO of Ant Financial uh, four years ago, and he was talking about how they use tech and you know how it's all live um, 24 seven. It's quite, quite amazing. One, one thing you can't do, Jamie, is outsource the credit decision to tech. Yep. You know, at the end of it, you know, we can't, we're not looking to build algorithms to do, you know, to replace our skill set. At the end of it, what we're using technology about is to assist us to manage a business as it scales. Uh, but the credit decision process is still very much, um, you know, heavily influenced by the skill set of the, the investment team. Still comes up to you guys because it yep. used to, didn't there it? Are, um, yep. So the four founders still yep. tick it off still and say, decisions. this is our yep. business. Well, yeah, great. Uh, I love the methodology. Thank um, you. All right, Andrew, thanks very much for adding to uh, much, this series. Uh, hopefully we can catch up with you in the near future about other topics, but uh, really appreciate your time. Um, thanks, Drew, for your contribution. Uh, I think we're on again on Friday. Uh, Chow from Cooper's Investors is talking about um, Asian equities and why you know a retirement portfolio should have exposure to back to the G, why it should have exposure to growth, and why Asia potentially provides a lot of that over the next 30 years. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew, and thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it.